Tennessee's rejection marks the current political ceiling for red flag laws. Plus, Cam Edwards of Bearing Arms on the Biden administration's push to expand who needs a gun dealing license. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also a C9 contributor and the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over to sign up for our weekly newsletter, where you'll keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America. This week, we are discussing a brand new rule that was just handed down right before we went to film this um, from the Biden administration that seeks to clarify or really expand who is subject to licensing requirements for selling used guns. And uh, this week we've got somebody on the show who follows all of this stuff very closely and is a good friend of the show. He's been on several times in the past. I think a fan favorite as well. Uh, Bearing Arms editor, Cam Edwards. How you doing, Cam? Hey, Steve. I'm good, man. I appreciate the invite. Absolutely. We always enjoy having you on as, as uh, somebody else who also follows these things on a regular basis and writes about them and is very, uh, very smart in my opinion. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I, my, my brain is a little numb after reading all of these uh, court decisions and uh, legalese <laughs> with these proposed rules. So I'm, I'm feeling dumber than ever, but I, I do appreciate that. Well, it'd be even dumber if you didn't read them and then want to comment <laughs> on them. That'd be much worse. So, um, it's, it's much better this way, but, uh, yeah, the, the, speaking of which, this is a 108 page, proposed rule that the ATF just dropped that the White House just announced. Um, I don't think either one of us has gotten through every 108 page, but we have both gone through uh, a significant portion of it. And I think the most important aspects uh, are, are fairly well covered. Uh, so why don't we just start off with uh, your what's your bottom line takeaway? What's your what's your first reaction to this news? You know, I thought it was interesting because last March, Biden said that he had reached the limits of his executive authority on guns, right? I, I can't do anything more. It's up to Congress. And uh, lo and behold, what about three weeks after uh, all of the major gun control groups announced their endorsement for his reelection bid, he pulls this uh, rabbit out of his hat and says, oh, I found something else I can do. Um, and I understand that this has actually been, you know, the, the ATF has been looking at this for some time. This has been sort of the worst kept secret in D.C. for the past few months that this was coming. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that. Um, there are a couple of things, you know, the uh, I think it was the White House fact sheet that was released in conjunction with this uh, proposal uh, said that, uh, you know, this makes clear there is no uh, gun show loophole or Internet sale loophole. Um, and I don't think that there ever was uh, a right. quote unquote gun show loophole. Right. The, the, the question has always been, if you if you are in the business of selling a firearm, you have to have an FFL. So who's in the business of selling firearms, right? And that's what this proposal is all about. And it expands, I think, the, the definition of who is engaged in the business of selling a firearm. It doesn't encompass every private gun owner. It doesn't encompass every private sale of a firearm. But it does, I, I think, um, as you say, this is 108 pages, right? The, 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 the ATF uh, says that they're trying to offer clarity here. And I'm not really sure that they've done that, uh, much mm -hmm. like their rules on uh, stabilizing braces and frames and receivers. There still seems to be a lot of um, opaqueness to these rules and not transparency. Yeah, you know what? I think that's a that's definitely a fair takeaway that I would agree with. And in, in the end is like as much as they've written out here, you still get a lot of 
sections where it's uh, a bit murky, right? Like the idea is you have to get a license if you're engaged in the business and engaged in the business means that you, uh, I mean, Congress just changed the definition recently and we'll get into that a little bit, but, uh, but you know, you're supposed to be profiting from your gun sales. It's supposed to be for that purpose that you're selling guns to, to make a living. Well, not make a living anymore, but predominantly profit. Um, which is, I don't know how that's very different from make a living, but um, we can, we'll get into a little bit of that. And, uh, you know, there seems to be no real standard for how many guns you can sell and how much money you can make off of them, like a profit margin or something like that is not in mm -hmm. this rule. Uh, you know, that perhaps one of the biggest takeaways may be what's not in there compared to what is. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's a really good point because under the standards that, that ATF's proposing, you don't even have to make a profit, right? In fact, you don't even have to actually sell the firearm. It's just if your motivation, they determine, uh, was to derive a profit from the sale of these firearms, then you are, you know, engaged in the business, right? And you need to have an FFL license. Uh, one of the things that they talk about is a sort of evidence that someone's engaged in the business is, is simply renting a table at a gun show, mm -hmm. um, which I think is, is, you know, a very broad standard. Now, they also talk about, well, if you have business cards, uh, if you, you know, tell somebody as you're selling a farm, Hey, I can, I can get more for you. Um, that, you know, that that's an indication that someone's engaged in the business. And again, all of these things are, are indications. There is no clear bright line. Um, when it gets to, you know, FFLs that are disposing of their inventory, I think the, the, the nature of the rule is a little more clear. Um, but I still think that there are going to be a lot of, you know, everyday gun owners who are rightfully going to be concerned about whether or not the government is going to see them selling a firearm to a friend or a neighbor uh, as engaged in the business. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, I think that's been a concern to this point and probably will remain a concern to some degree under this new rule as well. And, and honestly, if you read the rule and the ATF has talked about this in the past as well, and they, they've kept somewhat surprisingly, a fairly consistent line on this, uh, given the agency's track record in other areas, that they don't want necessarily to give you a full definition of these things because they want to have flexibility when prosecuting people. Um, you know, I think that's just sort of the bottom line. They, they don't want to tell you that you can sell up to 10 guns a year. They talk about it in the rule specifically because they think people will use that, that floor to uh, try and bypass uh, the, these restrictions and, um, you know, that they don't want to allow that to happen. So they want to give themselves a lot of flexibility, which is another thing that the ATF likes to have. Most federal agencies, right, like to have more power than they might say they need because they they want to be able to go after people that they have determined are, uh, uh, you know, a problem. And obviously the issue with that is it leaves lots of people who aren't criminals in a gray area, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, of course, the government wants flexibility. The question is whether or not they should have that flexibility yeah. uh, to to you know broaden uh, the scope of their prosecutions as opposed to providing that clear, bright line. If the rule was, you know, listen, if you sell more than X number of guns per year, whether that's six, 10, 12, 20, whatever, I, honestly, the, you know, the ATF's argument is, well, people would try to, you know, skate right up to that line or maybe try to find an, uh, another way around it. Look, people who are, uh, selling guns illicitly, who who really are engaged in the business and don't have an FFL, they're going to continue to do that, uh, no matter what the rules are. the The advantage of having that clear, bright rule and of having that transparency that, that the average gun owner can follow 
yeah, it would make prosecution more difficult for the ATF, but it would make it easier to obey the law for everybody else. And isn't right. that supposed to be the point? And that is that's the inherent tension there. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, let, let me just read real quick with the White House. Uh, their their description of what's in the proposal is fairly uh, fairly accurate, I, I think, after reading the, the section this is based on. But they say, quote, uh, under the proposed rule, a person will be presumed to be required to become a licensed dealer and run a background checks if they meet one or more of the following criteria. A little bit of a mouthful there, but uh, you either have to, quote, quote, offer for sale any number of firearms and also represents to the potential buyer that they are willing and able to purchase and sell them additional firearms, sort of like a recurring thing there, uh, repeatedly offer for sale firearms within 30 days after they are purchased, repeatedly offer for sale firearms that are like new in their original packaging, repeatedly offer for sale multiple firearms of the same make and model. And then there's the people who had their FFLs revoked uh, statute there, which is a little, like you said, is a little more niche, but also a little more um, straightforward. So uh, yeah, your thoughts on those, those requirements that they've outlined. Well, you know, again, I mean, there are all kinds of requirements that they can hand down. Um, the question is how easy is it going to be to follow those things and how easy is it going to be for the government to say that you're not in compliance? You know, one of the things that I noticed um, immediately is unlike a civil or unlike a criminal trial, right, where you're innocent until proven guilty, the ATM has sort of flipped that, the uh, flipped the script there. Um, and they say that basically the presumption, if they bring a challenge, is that you should have had an FFL license and it's up to you to provide, I believe they, I believe they say compelling evidence to the contrary. Um, and so, again, they seem to be putting their thumb on the scales in terms of wanting to go after gun owners for uh, violating this rule without really giving them much of an opportunity to to know where those lines are and to stay within the guardrails. Hmm. Interesting. They do give a little more, I guess, specificity in the actual rule itself, as you might expect. And uh, for instance, one one requirement they outlined. Well, I, one of the things I thought was actually kind of funny is that the you know you were discussing earlier people who are selling guns illegally um, that they're you know that's it's fairly straightforward when someone is doing that. Um, and basically, they outline there's a whole section where just selling illegal guns makes you um, somebody who has to get a, a permit, which is kind of a a bit of a a bit of a lark, I think. You know, if you sell an illegal gun, then you can't get you can't have that. Uh, you in order to sell illegal guns, you have to have a license. Is sort of right. one of the requirements they put in there, which is a bit, you know, a bit of a cash twenty two thing. But um, you know, a bit of a way for them to charge people with more crimes, I guess, if they catch them. But uh, they also have this uh, outline that says anyone who spends more money or its equivalent, because remember, this is not just about you can trade guns for things that are valuable as well. And it would still fall under this idea of profiting. So if you traded one gun for a more expensive gun or, uh, you know, a cheap gun for lots of ammunition, they might require it. And they might consider that to be something where you need to get in a, a license uh, under the right circumstances. But, uh, you know, spends more money or it's equivalent on purchasing purchases of firearms for the purpose of resale than the person's reported taxable gross income during the applicable period of time. So uh, if you spend more money on acquiring guns to resell, then you make as uh, in your other you know, streams of income, 
that could make you somebody who has to get a, a license. That's an interesting one. Yeah. And, and, you know, what's interesting here is that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding based on this proposal that, you know, taking the buyer to a gun store and putting them through a background check, um, that's not an option, right? It, it, you, you, hmm. It's not like you can use these services of an FFL and do these things. The government is maintaining that if you engage in this type of behavior, you have to go through the process of acquiring a federal firearms license. Is that your understanding, too? Yeah, I think that's probably right. Although I do wonder, you know, if an ATF, a lot of this stuff, it's like, is an ATF agent paying attention to you? You know, are you doing things that they're skeptical of? Yeah. Uh, and so if you're if you're taking everybody you sell a gun to to an FFL to, to have the gun transferred to that FFL, you're probably going to be fine. But but under the rules, you know, the technicality, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, probably going to be fine uh, versus you're, you're going to be fine, I think, is a very different thing when it comes to the ATF and the enforcement of these rules. That's, you know, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not just about whether or not. Uh, I, mean, I mean, that's how the ATF would like it. Right. They'd like to say, well, we'll use our discretion. We'll run all this power and then we're only going to use it in this limited way. That's that's a common theme that you see through all these rules. Um but yeah, is that the right approach, as you mentioned earlier? Like that's obviously that's great for the ATF, not necessarily great for, uh, you know, your average Joe out there who's trying to figure out what's legal or not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, again, it's it's you know, this is not going to be an end to gun sales, but I think that this is definitely, uh, you know, a step towards um, I, not just a step. I mean, it is for the regulation of private transfers of firearms and. You know, gun control groups are uh, singing the uh, DOJ's praises today, but I would say this doesn't even go far enough for them, and they're going to be clamoring for more. Yeah. Um, let me – I, I want to get to that. I want to talk a little bit more about the political implications of all this. But uh, real quick, let's let's read out the quote for – the ATF did put in sort of their view of who isn't required to get a license uh, when selling used guns under this rule. And, and so they said, uh, quote – under this proposed rule, a person would not be presumed to be engaged in the business requiring a license as a dealer when the person transfers firearms only as a bona fide gift or occasionally sells firearms only to obtain more valuable, desirable, or useful firearms for their personal collection or hobby, uh, unless their conduct also demonstrates a predominant intent to earn a profit. So, uh, you know, that's pretty much in line with what they've been saying for years uh, about this, but it, they did put this written definition in there. Now there's obviously still a lot of uh, things you could take as, uh, you know, what is that? What exactly is your personal collection or hobby? You know, so uh, what's interesting is they, they, so they don't define more valuable guns. Well, so they don't define the term occasionally. Yeah. Uh, so we, we, we don't know what occasionally means, but they do provide a definition of a personal collection of firearms. And I actually found this extraordinarily interesting, Stephen, because here's, Here's what they say. Personal firearms that a person accumulates for or a, a personal collection of firearms or personal firearms collection um, are personal firearms that a person accumulates for study, comparison, exhibition or for a hobby, uh, e.g. non-commercial recreational activities for personal enjoyment, such as hunting or skeet target or competitive shooting. The term shall not include any firearm purchase for the purpose of resale or made with the predominant intent to earn a profit. Do you notice something missing? From that, uh, you know, definition of why people might own a gun, Stephen? Yes, the most common reason people own guns. 
That's right. Yeah. Self-defense. Apparently, if you purchase a fire for self-defense under this proposed rule, that would not be considered part of your personal collection. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if it has any practical effects, but it, that I is... don't either. I think this is probably just, you know, the the knee jerk, uh, you know, anti-gun uh, ideology of the Biden administration that they don't even want to acknowledge that that is the primary reason why most people own firearms. I don't think the ATF would. Again, we get into what we think the ATF might do versus what they might actually do. But um, yeah. it would be it would be a very newsworthy story if the ATF said, hey, you sold that gun and it wasn't meant for skeet shooting, it was meant for self-defense. And so therefore, yeah. uh, you know, you were, we're charging you with, with you should have been engaged in the business. I doubt that's going to happen. Yeah. But I, I just I, I found it amusing that, uh, you know, this administration just can't even acknowledge the, the most common reason why people are exercising their Second Amendment rights. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it is interesting to see that not in the definition of personal collection, because that is why most people own firearms. Like certainly the other reasons are common as well. But uh, um, and yes, I think it would be truly disturbing and outrageous if the ATF tried to go after people on, on the basis of not including that in their definition of personal uh, collection. But, um, you know, it's it, it's it's pretty fascinating to see the to look at the the politics of this, I think, because, um, you know, it's we're talking a lot about it's it's a little bit unclear exactly how these things are going to uh, work in practice and wh how like I, I don't know. Do, do you have a maybe a guess at how many more people are going to have to get a license after this? It seemed it seemed to be hard to estimate that. Hey, I mean, yeah, I don't think there's any way to know. Uh, because, again, of, of, of how vaguely these rules are written, um, I, you know, obviously, like you said, we'll get into the politics of this in a second. Obviously, I think the intent is to uh, encourage as many people as possible mm -hmm. to uh, to apply for an FFL. At the same time, uh, you know, the ATF is being sued over their zero tolerance policies for FFLs, right. uh, where they're revoking licenses for, you know, minor clerical errors and things of that nature. So it's, it's interesting. I mean, on the one hand, they are definitely pushing more people to become FFLs at the same time. They're trying to actively reduce the number of FFLs in existence. And also, I would note, too, uh, to, to that point that they do reemphasize in here that you still have to have a place of business to be an FFL. So, uh, you know, for instance, there's a lot of people, I think even myself here where I live um, in an apartment, I don't believe I can run a, a place of business out of my apartment. So I'd have to rent somewhere if I wanted to obtain an FFL personally. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Uh, you know, some some areas and states let you register businesses in your home, of course, um, but but a lot of them have restrictions on where you can operate a firearms business. So uh, that is another sort of thing of like, well, why don't you just go get an FFL? Well, that the, while they're, while oftentimes administrations like the Biden administration or the Obama administration will try to tell you that they want you to get the FFL, they also don't make it very difficult for you to actually have one in practice. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, that, I think that's part and parcel of uh, yeah, how the gun control uh, uh, side works. I mean, we you see the same thing in places like Washington, D.C. or Chicago when it comes to concealed carry licenses. Right. We were going to mandate that you get this training that uh, you can't find uh, inside the city limits. Uh, in Washington, D.C., you know, you can't I don't I, I think there might be one or two FFLs now that are doing transfers. But, you know, there's still no ranges. Right. There's still no uh, commercial gun stores 
uh, in those places. Um, so they tell you you have to do this, and then they make it very difficult for you to do these things. And right. whether it's, again, selling a firearm or buying a firearm or carrying a firearm, um, that seems to be a, a commonality. Yeah, I think that's a major flaw in in all this. Like if you, that sort of undercuts the intentions at play, um, or at least makes it fair to question them for sure. Um, now, at the same time, though, I look at this and this seems even less aggressive, at least uh, from what I've read thus far, than even you know the what Obama, the president uh, President Obama did. Uh, with his executive order, which was to sort of imply that anybody who sold even one gun might have to get uh, an FFL. Now, they still have that same basic concept in this. But, um, you know, you look at the chatter that was going on before this was issued. And a lot of it was like, we want to try and get to universal background checks without passing universal background check law. And this doesn't seem to do that, right? I mean, this seems to be uh, significantly more modest than that. Am I, you know, what, what is your take on it? Do you think that's right? Or am I being a little bit too uh, limited in my view of this? Um, you may be a little optimistic. Uh, you know, I, I, again, so much of this, uh, again, depends on how this rule is going to be enforced. And I don't think that you can expect this rule to be enforced modestly. Um, that That's the big issue. No, it's not universal background checks, right? Uh, uh, you know, uh, family members, uh, for example, are exempt, although I'm not sure that they define family members. Right. So your son or daughter may be covered. What about your cousin or your uncle or your, uh, you know, your stepniece? Um, and I do think that the goal still is, quote unquote, universal background checks. But part of me wonders if maybe the reason why they are, uh, you know, couching their language the way they are is because they're tired of being smacked down by the courts. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, you look at uh, going back to the Trump administration, the uh, the bump stock uh, ban has uh, been overturned by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and I believe the Sixth Circuit as well. Right. Uh, Supreme Court has not yet weighed in. But then you've also had federal courts around the country uh, say that the uh, frame and receiver rule and the uh, stabilizing brace rule are violations of the Administrative Procedures Act. Again, we don't have final determinations on those cases, but it, th this could be. Uh, you know, the, AT the ATF saying, all right, well, let, let, let's write this uh, maybe more narrowly than we would have wanted um, in the hopes that, you know, it gives us a better shot at having this this rule actually upheld for once. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's what it feels like to me, because um, a lot of the stuff in here, while there's certainly the ambiguity that we've talked about and the potential for, um, you know, abuse of some of these standards, a lot of this stuff was kind of already the case, right? Like the um, you saw this in uh, convictions going back to the 70s when these rules were first being challenged. Um, you know, people have been convicted under the previous uh, understanding of all this for selling, you know, a dozen guns within a 30 day period for uh, selling guns and making as little as $350 a profit. Um, you know, the, the, a lot of this stuff is is not really new from what I can tell. And that's where, uh, you know, I wonder if they, yeah, if they really did try to rein it in a little bit, uh, compared, especially compared to what the gun control groups seemed to, there was a lot of reporting in the run up to this. They really wanted them to push the boundaries on this. And I don't know that it, that he has. I mean, it, it, you know, again, it, it, it may still end up pushing the boundaries in practice because, you know, the ATF and, and you're right. I mean, the ATF even said um, we've never 
said that you have to actually make a profit selling a firearm. And we've never said there's a specific number of guns that, that have to be sold before you are engaged in the business. So in that sense, the ATF says, well, we're just maintaining the status quo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the problem is, again, that's a really vague and fuzzy status quo. And if they start enforcing this proposed rule, uh, as strictly as they're enforcing, you know, uh, the the uh, regulations regarding uh, uh, current FFLs, yeah, the zero uh, where revocations up four hundred and thirty percent, and you've got even more folks who are, you know, simply giving up their license rather than trying to fight city hall, um, then this could be really problematic really quickly. Mm. And and again, I mean, uh, you know, I think that this was a, a gift to the gun control groups ahead of twenty twenty four, and so they're going to expect and and I think demand that this proposed rule, if it takes effect, um, be enforced as strictly as they're enforcing their, you know, zero tolerance policies towards uh, existing FFLs. Yeah, I think that's that's a really legitimate point about enforcement, especially given what you've seen with current FFLs and, and the revocation rate just skyrocketing under the Biden administration um, and a lot of the complaints that you've seen. And there's even a new lawsuit that's dealing with all of that um, on a a mass basis. Um, but, uh, yeah. And I think that's where the, the more realistic concern would come in about, you know, maybe the rule isn't that different from what they've been doing in certain cases, but maybe those certain cases become less and less rare, I guess. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's interesting is like, this isn't, What's funny to me is that, you know, as you say, in the buildup to this, there, there was a lot of talk and a lot of chatter that this was going to be, you know, getting as close to, quote unquote, universal background checks as possible. Um, and if, if uh, you know, what what the, the rule that is released today, for lack of a better word, it's not really sexy, right? It, it doesn't really allow the White House or the gun control groups to. Uh, to, to claim that there's some major advance happening, right? Um, right? If the gun control group say, well, this closes the gun show loophole, the White House says the gun show loophole never existed. Um, and, and again, you and know, private person-to-person sales, <laughs> never right? And, and private person-to-person sales will continue to exist even under these new rules. Now, again, the parameters of what those sales may look like are, are unclear, uh, but the ATF has reassured us that at least in some cases, those sales will continue to take place. So, I, I, you know, I'm curious to see. Um, I don't think this is the. I, I'll make a prediction. I don't think this is the end of uh, uh, you know executive actions, at least uh, announced executive actions between now and next November. Yeah, could that could very well be. Um, I mean, yeah, like you said, the president had previous <laughs> previously stated he didn't have any more power, and yet here we are with another executive order from him on guns. So, um, and and I guess uh, you could also look at this and. Uh, and remember how the frames and receivers and, and pistol brace rules actually went in practice, which is that they they released, it, especially the pistol brace, they released a rule that had something akin to a more objective standard. It wasn't, you know, they still had a lot of subjective aspects to it, but it had like a whole point system. And there was some attempt at uh, making an objective measure for what constitutes, you know, a pistol brace and what constitutes an NFA item. And then after the comment period, they basically abandoned that whole thing. So this this proposed rule might change quite a lot before it actually uh, makes it into uh, its final form as well. I guess it's another important point. Yeah, same thing with the frame and receiver rule, too. I mean, remember uh, when this was first released, the frame and receiver rule, uh, ATF said it would cover 
you know, basically the, the frames and receivers themselves. Mm-hmm. And then they said, oh, OK, actually, it, it's only going to cover, you know, kits, right? Kits, the buy, build, yeah. shoot kits. And then uh, the gun control groups weren't happy with that. So then they said, oh, OK, well, the, the kits can include, you know, if, if a jig is sold with it, if a tool is sold with it. Uh, you know, you don't need all of the parts necessary to build a firearm. Just if it's sold with uh, anything that might help you complete that frame or receiver, then that's enough to qualify. Um, so, yeah, they do have a tendency to go back on the word. I mean, Steve Dettelbach testifying before Congress said, uh, you know, listen, as long as the brace isn't attached to the firearm, then you're not in violation of the law. And the ATF, uh, you know, completely negated his testimony before Congress. So, yeah, I, I don't. I, I think every one of these statements comes with an expiration date. To uh, borrow a phrase from our friend Jim Garrity, um, and I don't think that gun owners can rest easier, be assured that the language they see today is going to be the language as practiced by the agency if this rule goes into effect. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And you know, I, I was. I think you could have in the, all the hype building up to this, you could have expected something like if you sell a single don, a gun and make a single dollar profit, you got to get a, a license. And this isn't that, but. There's no there's no saying it couldn't turn into something closer to that. But before this is all over. Yeah. But again, I mean, and again, it, it, it's that would be a clear, bright line. We wouldn't like it, but it would be a clear, bright line. Instead, what the ATF is saying, you don't have to sell a gun. You don't have to make a profit. But we can still say that you're engaged in the business of selling a firearm or, or selling firearms, regardless of whether or not a gun changes hands, regardless of whether or not you make a penny. If you're in, if we think your intent is to be engaged in the business. Well, then by God, you are. So, you know, a a clear, bright line that is that is, you know, patently unreasonable might even have been better than the language that we got today. Yeah, potentially. Um, uh, The other wrinkle to all this and the other thing that makes it very different from the previous two rules, uh, I think at least in terms of its constitutionality, perhaps, is uh, that this this comes after Congress actually did something, right? The other two rules, Congress didn't do anything. And then the Biden administration said they wanted to drastically change how uh, gun laws were enforced. In this case, we had the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which did slightly alter what the definition for engaged in the business uh, is under federal statute, right? And, And so... Uh, I do wonder, given the more modest nature of the actual rule itself, as it stands now, we'll see where it ends up, but uh, combine that with the change in language that Congress itself has authorized, um, which basically removed the livelihood requirement that had been attached to uh determining whether someone was engaged in the business and needed to get a license. Uh, I, I wonder what the odds of this surviving court scrutiny will be, because as you mentioned, the other two rules have done very poorly. And, you know, it has the administration, has the Biden administration figured out a way to try and improve their odds in court, do you think? I, I mean, I think that's the goal. I don't know if they're going to be successful or not. Um you know, the, the, the ATM has argued in these other previous rules that, well, Congress gave us the authority under the Gun Control Act, right? So we may be referencing a law passed in 1968 versus a law passed in 2022, um, but the dispute is still over what Congress's intent was, um, you know, and, and I think that that is going to be true with this rule as well. 
uh, did Congress intend by uh, removing that, you know, reference to uh, to, to livelihood? Um, did they intend for the ATF to write a rule that is as broad and as vague as it is? And I'm guessing that there are going to be a lot of at least Republicans who voted for the Bipartisan Savior Communities Act who say, no, that was not their intention. Um, you know, particularly, again, if this comes back to bite them in the, in the rear end. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, that was the design. I, I don't know how successful uh, this will be. I think a lot of it probably depends on, you know, uh, who brings these cases, where these cases are brought, and ultimately whether or not the Supreme Court uh, agrees to hear the, you know, this, this particular legal challenge when one arises. Well, it's, it's funny you should mention the, uh, <laughs> the intention of the Congress people who voted for the Bipartisan Safety Safer Communities Act, because I, I actually did go out and ask every single senator uh, who's still serving that voted for this the proposal what they think the language change means. Now, only two of them responded, so there hasn't been uh, a lot of attention paid to this quite yet. But I did get Senator uh, John Cornyn, who was the pr the principal uh, negotiator for Republicans in the Senate on this bill. His office did respond, um, and and he said, "quote This language is tailored towards." Or his office said, "Tailored towards individuals regularly selling guns to strangers with the predominant motive of making money through a side business." like the person who sold the Midland shooter his weapon. And it is drafted in such a way that prosecutors will need to prove specific intent on the part of the unlicensed seller. Uh, now, the other, the other senator who responded was Joni Ernst, the Republican from Iowa. And she had a much uh, more aggressive stance on all this. She said, quote, President Biden is twisting the law to fit his liberal gun-grabbing agenda. Um, his administration's latest attack on lawful gun owners clearly oversteps both the intent and the text of the law at the expense of the average gun seller. Senator Ernst has repeatedly defended FFL holders and will continue to stand up against the Biden administration's attack on Second Amendment rights. So there are two quotes from two people who signed, you know, who helped craft and, and uh, voted for this change. And, and I do imagine that that will be a relevant thing once the court challenges come up. If if this law, if this rule is successful in getting, you know, approved, essentially. Yeah. And, and it, it is interesting I mean, again, because, again, you've got two Republican senators uh, who voted for this who, who have uh, very different views. Now, I, I would remind Senator Cornyn's office that um, uh, contrary to the assertion that, you know, that this targets people who are regularly selling firearms, as you and I just talked about, you don't have to sell a single gun. Uh, under this rule to be deemed someone engaged in the business. So I, if I, I honestly, uh, just based on those two comments, I'd say that Senator Ernst has it right, at least as far as the ATF is interpreting uh, the uh, the underlying legislation here. Mm. Yeah. Well, but given that Cornyn was the chief negotiator, I could definitely see why he would want to put a positive spin on it, too. Sure. And um, I mean, you know, uh, like Cornyn said, uh, they they think this is directed specifically at people who are doing this as a, as a whole business, you know, essentially, I mean, which is what this is supposed right. Engaged in the business is the definition in there. Uh, so we'll, we'll see, I guess, how this all shakes out in court. I, I think it'll be interesting to follow one, how the ATF actually, how this all goes through rulemaking and the comment period and what comes out the other side of that. And then what court challenges, if any, end up happening and how, how much congressional intent plays into that. Cause this is, especially because this is one of those 
fairly rare uh, situations where we have very recent congressional intent uh, on it. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be a fascinating case to watch once that hits the courts. And, um, and it's definitely something that we will be following closely here at the reload and something that I imagine you will be following closely at bearing arms. Um, so if people want to follow more of your writing on this, we'll, you know, can you just give them a quick overview of how they can do that? Yeah, absolutely. Just uh, go to bearingarms.com. Uh, you can check out Bearing Arms Cam and Company on YouTube and Rumble and all the major podcast platforms. And yeah, this will be one of the many, many legal cases that uh, we are going to be following uh, <laughs> in the uh, months ahead. It's hard to keep track of them all uh, right now, but uh, there's you yep. know always room for one or two more with the uh, gun controllers ramping up their activism ahead of 2024. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll have to have you back on the show again real soon. It's always a pleasure to have you. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, we appreciate you being on and, and we're going to head over to our new segment now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined as always by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Doing good and looking forward to the uh, three day weekend. We're recording this right before Labor Day weekend. So looking forward to the extra day off. Yeah, it's funny when you run run your own company because it's like, I mean, yeah, it's a it's a holiday, but I, like if I, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, I'll probably still work if I if there's right. a story to write. I don't know. It's like one of those things, but uh, yeah, I'm still looking forward to them. You know, friends are getting together for cookout and stuff. You got anything nice. interesting going on? Yeah, I got some. Uh, my girlfriend, her sister, and, and husband are coming into to town for. Uh, to come stay with us. So we're going to hang out and probably do some barbecuing as well. I feel like that's sort of the, what you got to do on a Labor Day yeah. weekend. So. Oh, for sure. And uh, head up to the mountains. So you got that beautiful country out there in Colorado. Yeah, I think, that, <clears throat> I think that's the plan. It's still pretty hot down here in the city in Denver, um, high nineties. So we're going to go escape the heat a little bit. And, and like you said, see some beautiful views up in the mountains this weekend. Nice. Nice. Uh, yeah. I, I have to still have to get to the range. I, I wrote uh, to the members like I guess two weeks ago <laughs> um, uh, about how I modified my 1911 to, you know, try and get a little bit better fitment. The thumb safety was always digging into my, my hand when I would shoot it. And it's one of my favorite guns. If I could, you know, I thought, well, all right, I'll, I'll do a little bit of non-critical gunsmithing. This is in the outside of the safety, no, nothing internal. And uh, maybe I'll get a little bit uh, nicer shooting experience from that. So, I have to actually go and shoot the gun, <laughs> figure out if it worked. I also replaced the uh, the slide catch because the old one wasn't wasn't locking open on the last round. Uh, that might be a magazine issue too. I guess we'll find out. So I, I'm going to try to get to the range maybe today. Uh, this is we're just recording on Friday, um, and uh, yeah, try to give people an update maybe in the members uh, newsletter or if not next week's podcast perhaps. But uh, yeah, that, I'm looking forward to doing that. Uh, although, did, I don't know if you heard this news. There's a there's an escaped uh, convict, a guy who was convicted of murder like two weeks ago and up in Pennsylvania. Have you heard about this, by the way? I have not. Yeah, we talked briefly about this before we started recording. I hadn't heard about this, but it's a little a little bit frightening, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, this is uh, obviously it's not really gun news, but this was a uh, this actually was Chester County Prison, which is uh, nearby where I grew up. I'm from Chester County, Pennsylvania. Uh, from Downingtown uh, and uh, Delaware County. My dad's side of the family's in Delaware County. But um, <clears throat> yeah, so I got a lot of people who live right by that prison and, you know, in relative close distance, not 
literally next door. But um, yeah, it's pretty scary. This dude murdered his girlfriend because she found out that he was wanted for murder in Brazil. Uh, so he may have murdered several people. And now yeah. he's, somehow he escaped this prison and he's just on the loose up there, um, which is not great. I don't I don't know that there's anything I can practically do about it. I, mean, I guess I could drive up there and stay on the farm and bring my guns, but that doesn't like police are hunting for him. Um I, I don't know, it's just not it's not great. It's yeah, not definitely great not thing. great. Multiple murderer <clears throat> on the loose is not ideal. Yeah. Weird, weird. I don't think I've ever heard of that happening up there before. An escape like that from Chester County Prison. But um, you know, maybe maybe it happened and I just wasn't aware. <laughs> but sure. This one's made national news now. Is on CNN and um, not too happy about it. I hope they catch this guy before, maybe before this uh, goes up for for members on Sunday, uh, and hopefully at least before it goes up on Monday for everybody else. We'll see. Yeah, hopefully. Um, yeah, but anyway, what what do we have this week in terms of gun news? Sure. Yeah. So we'll head over to the the newsletter links. Uh, so outside the reload, we got a great piece in the dispatch by uh, Kevin Williamson, kind of talking a little bit about some of the backstory of that horrible shooting in Jacksonville and why that mm. shooter was still able to get his guns because Florida has something called the Baker Act. And and some people were wondering whether or not that should disarm him. Um, but it doesn't under the letter of the law. But he, he spells out a great argument for why there are other tools available to stop a lot of the shooting problems that we keep facing as a society. And I think it's a well-argued, well-written piece. And I know you, you liked it as well. Yeah, I thought it was a great piece. We have to have Kevin on the show sometime. But um you know, he was he was Baker acted, which means he was involuntarily examined, but wasn't committed, I guess, at the end of that examination period. And so it doesn't meet the threshold for uh, in federal law for somebody who's prohibited after being involuntarily committed. Um, of course, Florida also has a red flag law, which is something we'll, we'll get into a little bit later in the show, The given what happened in Tennessee. But he wasn't subject to that either. And it's a common thing when you look at these mass shooting suspects. And I, technically, <clears throat> I know we, we talk a lot about definitions here. So technically, he killed three people, which is not meet the violence project standard. But obviously, you know, the, these are guidelines. He killed three people in a public attack. That's very similar to a mass shooting, even if it doesn't meet whatever definitional threshold you, you want to use. But um people who carry out attacks like that often have a background where they um, could have been either prosecuted for something serious enough to take away their gun rights or involuntarily committed for long enough to disqualify them from owning guns. And just nobody follows up enough to the point where they actually are prohibited. Um, now, you know, even if you're prohibited, <coughs> apologies, <laughs> Um, even if you are prohibited, you can still get guns. There have been situations. Southern Springs is a famous one uh, where people who um, were actually uh, convicted or committed have gotten guns anyway and carried out attacks. But uh, obviously, we want to make it as hard as possible under the law for people to do that. And um, oftentimes, you just see a lack of follow through in these situations. And I, I think that's a, something that doesn't get discussed enough because many of these shootings, the shooter themselves, at the very least, could have been legally prohibited from buying guns and weren't. So I think his piece is really important in that 
regard. And talk, he goes through in a lot of different aspects where the gun laws exist or um, different measures exist to try and either help or deal with people who are a threat in this way before they commit an act. But it takes work to actually uh, to, you know, implement those things properly and enforce them. And uh, people often aren't willing to do it. Now, you know, the only critique I'd have of his piece is just that um, it's, it's obviously easy to say this stuff in, in hindsight. And um, oftentimes you're not, uh, you, whether you want to be as strict in enforcing every possible law as you can, because you might catch the needle in the haystack in that process. Uh, you know, there's, there's still obvious considerations that you have to make or things you need to, that need to be understood going into that, that kind of calculation, right? Like if you enforce the law as strictly as you possibly can, you may catch a few more people like this, but you're also likely going to um, get a lot more people who aren't of that nature, but technically still would be subject to, to whatever restrictions you're, you're trying to put on. Anyway, sure. I think it's a great piece. People should, should go read the whole thing over at the dispatch. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, next link that we have is uh, from the Washington Post reporting on an update in a longstanding lawsuit against Washington, D.C., uh, sort of almost a decade now of various people that have been caught up in D.C.'s gun carry laws, both before they were changed from May issue to shall issue, actually technically no issue at, at one point. Yeah. Um, right. People that were convicted, both residents and non-residents in the district of carrying without a permit. And now that, you know, We've now established precedent that the way that they used to do carry permits was unconstitutional. Those folks sued over those charges, and Washington, D.C. now has to pay millions of dollars to these folks because of their unconstitutional gun laws and the charges that were brought down against these people. So that's yeah, and I think news. this, yeah, it has broader implications, right? For even for all the gun laws that we're seeing proliferate today, things that seem uh, fairly likely to be struck down as unconstitutional, a lot of these. Uh, Bruin response laws, for instance, uh, you know, anyone who's being charged under those in the future may be able to recoup, uh, you know, losses from from the governments that put these in place and prosecuted them. Uh, so it's an important thing to keep keep note of to, to understand about these situations like uh, people um, who've been unconstitutionally prosecuted do have a recourse uh, against the state when when their laws are, are thrown out and their convictions are, are uh, undone because of that. So uh, I think that's a key piece of information that people that, that also doesn't get talked about very often. Absolutely. Uh, and sort of in a similar vein about, you know, previously unconstitutional laws and some of the bad, you know, effects of that. We have the last link we're going to talk about comes from the Bollock Conspiracy, which is the legal blog at Reason Magazine. Um, a judge just ruled that the prosecution for sort of the graft and the corruption in the, the Santa Clara, I believe Santa Clara County uh, Sheriff's mm -hmm. Office for concealed carry permits back when they were still May issue. Uh, this one specifically focuses on Apple, the company Apple, their head of security, was basically promising iPads and a whole bunch of goodies in exchange for concealed carry permits for himself and his team. <laughs> and yep. they're well-documented. And, and so a judge just ruled that that prosecution for that corruption and bribery case can go forward. Yeah, and... That's another one where you saw that a lot under those yeah. sorts of regimes, those uh, may issue regimes where basically a lot of uh, determinations were just left up to the judgment of various police officials. 
well, those police officials are people too, and uh, they are susceptible to the same sort of corruption uh, that anyone else is. And often you would see cases like this. This is why you had a lot of well-connected and famous people can get permits in uh, areas where nobody else can. Right. And, uh, you know, this is a perfect example of that. Yeah. And so uh, we'll move to the, some of the reporting we did this week. Uh, both you and I had a piece, had pieces about uh, gun rights for under 21 year olds. So young adults. Uh, first off, we had a big ruling in, in Colorado where the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals refused to issue a stay uh, on the state's new law restricting all gun sales to 18 to 20 year olds. The governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, had requested the 10th Circuit to step in and issue a stay because a lower court had issued a preliminary injunction against that law. And the 10th Circuit said, no, you're not likely to succeed on the merits of your challenge. And so that law is not going to take effect. Yep. Yep. Uh, and uh, that's that's very significant uh, because it's another ruling in the vein of um, the gun, right, gun rights for 18 to 20 year olds. Right? Adults who are under 21 uh, often face for a lot more restrictions in what kind of firearms they can buy or in Colorado's case, whether they can buy firearms at all. Right. Um, and this has been an ongoing legal trend since before Bruin to see a lot of federal judges striking down these sorts of restrictions. And uh, and yeah, we had the a national case dealing with. Well, it was a case out of Virginia, but the judge in that case, and this deals with the federal ban on uh, selling handguns to people under 21. Um, he issued a nationwide injunction against that federal law uh, this week as well. So uh, you had two two rulings in the same vein that deal with the gun rights of under 21s uh, and you know positive outcome for for the plaintiffs in both those cases. Right. And it is worth noting one caveat is he stayed that injunction. So so for, yes. for listeners, it's not legal right now for under 21 year olds nationally to buy handguns just yet. He stayed that so that this, the government can appeal, which I'm sure they will. Um, mm -hmm. But it is still a significant ruling that a, a district judge issued a, a nationwide order blocking that law. So, big. yeah, absolutely. And he stated in pending appeal. And it was interesting too. <clears throat> oh, apologies. I'm all uh, gummed up this morning. But um he issued that stay because he found that there was uh, at least some likelihood to be uh, division over this outcome, like uh, that other judges might see it differently because the Bruin standard is new and there's a significant uh, variance, I guess, in how it's been applied. And so that's why he issued that stay. And that, that, yeah. that in and of itself is interesting as well. But yes, important important thing to note so people don't just try to go out to their local gun store who are sure. uh, 18 to 20 to buy a handgun. They still won't be able to sell it to you at the moment. Sure. Uh, and then the last big story we're going to talk about today is sort of the, the culmination, the end of the whole Tennessee special session. Uh, we obviously covered it pretty extensively, both you know, in the months before and in the immediate lead up to this special session. Uh, the, particularly the particular focus, rather, uh, was Governor Bill Lee's call for was essentially a red flag law with some minor modifications, uh, but well, there's some fairly significant modifications. Yeah, but, yeah, that's a good yeah, point. It was still but, a red flag law. He didn't want to call it a red flag law, but it, I don't know what else you would call it. Honestly. Sure. Yeah, it looked like a red flag law, certainly. But to your point, it had a lot of a lot of due process protections and some some other changes that you don't really find in any red flag laws elsewhere. So yeah. for that reason, we thought it was an interesting story to see. You know, could this potentially 
you know, gain some ground in a red state. And what we saw this week when the special session adjourned is nope, not at all. <laughs> it didn't nope. even get brought up for debate. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, <clears throat> pretty definitive, the outcome of that experiment there because the governor himself dropped support for not support i guess he he left it out of his proposed package of of uh reforms that he wanted the legislature to take a look at so you know effectively that killed any chance it had of of becoming law and they passed some very minor stuff like a gun safety advertising campaign funding for that and um you know, they didn't really do much else. Um, and it, honestly, if you look at the quotes coming out of that that session, nobody seemed very happy with it. Um, Lee tried to sort of uh, put a, a happy face on then uh, saying that, you know, any progress is good. But yeah, the key takeaway here, as you wrote in a member's piece, an analysis piece that you did, is um, this, this shows the, the ceiling for red flag laws, at least for now. Uh, the political ceiling is is clear. You're not very likely to get new red flag laws at all for the foreseeable future. Uh, you did a great breakdown of the the politics of this, right? The Tennessee, obviously a deep red state, Republican control of the legislature, both houses, and the governorship. And even with the governor on board with a modified red flag proposal, it didn't even you know, sniff, uh, the chance of getting a vote. Right. So, um, you know, how many States currently have these policies and how many of the States that don't are in the same boat? Yeah. So 21 States plus DC currently have a red flag law on the books. And I think it's telling that, uh, all but two of those States are either trifecta Democrat States, or they're at least mixed where there's some Democrat control, either one chamber or two chambers or the governorship. Um, and the two trifecta red states, of course, are Florida and Indiana. And Indiana was the second state to ever adopt it. So this was back in 2005. It was sort of, they didn't even call it, I don't even think they still call it a red flag law. They, they named it after, I think, a police officer that was, was killed by a mentally unstable person back in the day. So it kind of predates a lot of the modern debate over red flag yeah. laws. A and then the Florida- cal Calcification? Yeah, the calcification. You, people have yeah, that's, that's definitely the right hardened. Word. It is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then Florida, uh, of course, 2018, similar situation to Tennessee, I think, where it was spurred by a, a big mass shooting, obviously, with Parkland right. in that case. But Florida was, I think people, you know, because it's sort of distorted now how red Florida has become in the last few years. But at the time, mm -hmm. Florida was still considered the perennial swing state. And it was it was right. Republican controlled, certainly. But it was still, you know, Republicans had to be concerned with. You know, the other side, will voters respond? You know, will, will we get voted out? I think they're, they're, I noted in the piece, their margins in the legislature were as narrow as they had been in the last 20 years. So it's certainly a much closer political environment. Um, I certainly don't think you'd see the same thing happen today with Florida's current margins. So I just don't think you're going to see red states or at least states where Republicans control most of the levers of state power even consider red flag laws going forward. And that constitutes the majority of states that don't have one on the books currently. And that's sort of the end of the line for the policy for the time being. Right. There's what, 29 states left that could adopt it or that don't have it. And uh, I think 26 or 20, 27 of those are either full Republican control or Republicans control the legislature. Yeah. And the other two 
are what Maine and Pennsylvania, where there's yeah Maine, Maine and Pennsylvania. Maine's interesting because it's trifecta Democrat, but they also have a tendency to resist, especially the governor Janet Mills is very moderate on guns, and she tends to push back on gun control policies. They also have something called like a yellow flag law, which is right sort of similar to a red flag law, but it's not quite the same thing. And I think. I think the politicians there are pretty happy with that compromise. So I don't foresee a red flag law coming there soon. And then, of course, in Pennsylvania, Republicans can still still control uh, the state Senate. So I don't think you're going to see one coming out of there either. Yeah, you probably have to get um, significant change in either the makeup of these legislatures uh, by basically Democrats taking over control of more of them or. you know, a, a serious change in the political fortunes of this policy. But at this point, it, it certainly feels as though it's ended, it's ending up like your other gun, gun sure. policies that we've been debating for 30 years, right? The assault weapons bans and universal background checks where people are pretty well set on what they think of those policies. And there isn't likely to be a lot of change. I mean, the moment for red flag laws was, you know, 2018, 2019. Yeah. That's Absolutely. when they passed a lot of them. That's when the last Republican state to do it uh, adopted one. And so uh, it doesn't it doesn't seem politically likely to, to expand any further at this point. Right. The one at caveat I will make, now. I was going to say the one caveat I will make is in states where Republicans have underperformed pretty strongly of late, you have seen movement. So before this year, mm-hmm. it was 19 states plus D.C. that had a red flag law. But because Republicans lost control of the Michigan state government for the first time in three decades, Michigan yep. was able to adopt one. And a similar right. thing happened in Minnesota, where they where Republicans lost all control of state government. And what do you know, first year, Minnesota passes one. So yep. if that happens same for elsewhere. Virginia. Yeah, Virginia in 2020 was the same way. Um, and you haven't. the other thing I would note, too, is that you haven't seen repeals of these laws. Florida has not repealed right. their law, even though they passed a number of of pro-gun policies or, you know, what have you, they pass permitless carry, whatever you want to label these things. Um, but they didn't repeal the red flag law. Now, maybe they're not using it uh, as judicious. That, that's one of the main complaints you get from advocates for the, for red flag laws is they don't get used very often. Jacksonville, uh, as we mentioned earlier, could have been red flag, but wasn't. Um, and so you saw that you've seen that a number of times in mass shootings as well. Colorado, uh, the, the, the nightclub shooting there yep. Yep. was another example, but um, New York, you know, uh, the, the, the Buffalo shooting, another example of this. And so um, I think advocates right now maybe would be better focused on trying to, um, I don't know, get states to use these more often. If that's, you know, as far as if you're an advocate for, for red flag laws and you want uh, uh, something to be done, it's very, unlikely that you're going to see more of these passed until legislatures change hands, uh, as you just mentioned. And um, the more pressing issue, I think, for red flag advocates is the the lack of use of these sorts of of laws where they already exist, too. I mean, that alone is probably something that that keeps people on the fence as well, even if they're uh, they might consider something like this uh, with the, the right collection of due process protections. Uh, the fact that it, they don't seem to be, there's not a lot of strong evidence that they're effective in preventing mass shootings is, is another uh, political problem for yeah. for advocates. But, but yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. And I think, yeah, 
the change of legislatures is the thing that is going to, at this point, be what brings more of these into into play rather than having Republicans uh, adopt this this policy. It's Tennessee, I think, shows for the foreseeable future, that's yep. very unlikely. Yeah, I think that's but, on the table. Yeah, that's all we've got for this week. Um, if you guys appreciate the report reporting that we do, the analysis that we do, things like Jake's piece on the political ceiling for red flag laws, you can head on over to reload.com, sign up for our free newsletter, or perhaps buy a membership. That's how we that's how we do our report. That's how it's supported. Completely 100% membership uh, supported publication here at the Reload. We aren't, aren't owned by any big conglomerates or anything like that. We don't uh, take funding from any political organizations. It's all from our members' dues, and um, we appreciate that. And that's the way that you can most effectively help us continue to grow and bring you this sort of sober, serious reporting on firearms policy. But if you're not ready to make that leap, you can also, of course, just tell more people about The Reload. Share this podcast, give us a good rating, uh, and forward your free weekly newsletter to a friend. Those sorts of things, all that kind of stuff helps as well. Uh, But that's all we've got for this week, and we'll see you guys again real soon. All right.